Welcome to another great message by Pastor Adrian Wright, lead pastor at Anchor Church. We pray this message will encourage, inspire, and transform your life. Our heart is to share the hope of Jesus with our city and nation. This is always one of our favorite Sundays of the year, just being able to declare the gospel and and the story, the news of, of a God who loves to rewrite the story of rebels like us. I am so grateful that God has rewritten our story, has rewritten my story, and is writing a brand new one for each of us and for our church and for our community and for our city and for our nation. Um, I don't know if you've ever hung out with a story topper. You know what a story topper is? A story topper is a person that no matter how good your story is, their story always has to be better. Right? Have you ever met somebody like that? Like you'll tell them, man, I just bought a new car. I'm so excited. They say, that's cute. I've got three cars and a boat and I just got a helicopter from my dad. Whatever it may be, like theirs always has to be better. If you're like, I'm going overseas, um, you know, uh, to, to Europe and I'm going to go skiing in, in December, they'll say something like, oh, you know, when you get there, talk to Gustav at the, you know, at the, here you go. Use my loyalty card. I'm there like every winter, you know, and they're always a story topper. I went to a party once, and I was having a conversation with a couple, somebody that, people that I had just met there at that party, and we were kind of talking about kids. Uh, they had some young kids, and I had my young boys there, and, and uh, we were talking about kids and their development, and, you know, what age they start walking, and all that kind of stuff, and I was like, well, you know, my oldest son was quite an early developer. Um, as a boy, he already walked at nine months, which is quite early, and I was like, yeah, so, you know, Eli walked at nine months old, and, and, and she looked at me kind of like, so what? She was like, well, she literally said this. She was like, well, my daughter walked at seven months. And I was like, okay, I didn't know this was a competition. I'm so sorry for bothering you. Me and my loser son will go over there, you know, like. But if you've ever met a story topper, you'll know what a story topper looks like and sounds like. And, uh, but here's the good news is on Resurrection Sunday, we get the story that tops all other stories. Like it doesn't matter how many other things have been said, it doesn't matter what else you may achieve in life, and it doesn't even matter what your story has been up until today. As, as, as uh, hard as it may have been, or as difficult as, as it has may, may have been, or, or as many mistakes as you may have made, today you get a better story. This is the ultimate story topper because it doesn't matter what you may have done wrong or what you may have done right in life, nothing beats the fact that you were once dead and in Christ you are now alive, that Jesus has raised you from the dead. How's this for a story topper in Luke 7? I can just imagine um, this mom telling her story. You're like, well, God did something in my life, and she'll be like, wait, 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 wait. Let me tell you what God did in my life. This is the ultimate story topper, the message of resurrection. Luke 7, verse 11, it says, Soon afterward, Jesus went to a town called Nain, and his disciples and a great crowd went with him. As he drew near the gate of the town, behold, a man who had died was being carried out. And the only son of his mother, and she was a widow, and a considerable crowd from the town was with her. This woman is in a dire position and, and, and state as she has lost her husband, and now she's also lost her only son, and she is left to herself to fend for herself in this world, and there is great compassion for her, but I can imagine how destitute she must have felt in that moment. My husband is dead. Now my only son is dead. What have I got left in this world? How am I going to make my way through this world? 
And when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her. And that's what we've spoken about so much this weekend, is that we have a God who is compassionate, who is loving, who is gracious, who is kind, who runs out to meet the prodigals as they come home, who falls on the necks of repentant sinners and kisses them much, as we saw in the story of the prodigal son on Friday, who accepts us and loves us and brings rebels home. And he had great compassion on this lady. And when the Lord saw her, he had great compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. Do not weep. This is a, a recommendation in Scripture, something that we are, are charged with regularly is don't be afraid. Don't be sorrowful. Don't weep. Then he came up and he touched the buyer and the bearers stood still. And he said, young man, I say to you, arise. That's what God does when he interrupts our funeral, when he interrupts our death. When he interrupts people that are on a journey towards destruction, he touches, he stops the whole procession of death right there. And he says, young man, young woman, arise. Stand up, get up. Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and Jesus gave him to his mother. That is a story of restoration, and that is a story of resurrection, and I believe that our resurrection produces restoration. I believe that God doesn't just forgive us of our sins. He doesn't just wipe away or blot out the things that we have done wrong, but he gives us a new life, that he brings us into a new day, that he causes us to be new creations, that he, restore, that he restores things that were once broken and lost, and he brings them back into the fullness of what God intended for our lives, and that that's our story. That's what we celebrate here at Resurrection Sunday. That's what we get to speak about. And on Friday, we looked at how we, we, we were all born as rebels. That's why we need this. That's why this is the best story topper, because our life was going in one direction, and God completely flipped it around the same way he flipped this funeral around. What was a day of mourning became a day of rejoicing. And he does it for us, even though we're all rebels, even though we told him we didn't want this, even though we kicked against it. We all have this inner desire for defiance and self-indulgence and self-dependence, right? We don't want to submit to anybody. We don't want to place our faith in anything other than ourselves. And on this basis, all of us have at one point or another, to one degree or another, resisted and rejected and rebelled against the offer of God's grace and God's salvation. We've all said, I don't want God. I don't want to be saved. I'll do it my own way. Some of you may still think that way this morning. I know that with something we still all wrestle with in our own lives, the, the struggle between trusting in ourselves and truly submitting and surrendering to the help that comes from God. We see this very evidently in our lives when we are told we're not allowed to do something. Because at no point do you want to do something as badly as when you've been told you're not allowed to do it. Right, The Bible says that st the strength of sin is in the law. And when the commandment came, sin was stirred up within me. My own rebellion was stirred up. And so oftentimes, if you want to stir up rebellion, all you need to do is tell somebody they're not allowed to do something. And then the rebellion goes into full effect. Then we want to do it. It's like if you have dogs and they're behind a gate. Have you ever seen a dog behind a gate and another dog walks by? They go absolutely nuts because they can't get to each other, so they're going crazy, and they look like if you open this gate, they're gonna rip them 
each other to shreds. It looks like this is going to be the biggest dog fight. And then you open the gate and the dogs are like, oh, hey, hey, how's it going? You know, have a great Sunday. And they leave each other alone. It's only when the gate is closed, when the law is there, when the boundary has been set, that they rebel and they're vicious and they're like, open the gate. I'm like, oh, no, no, it's fine. I don't want it anymore. I wanted a fight before, but now you open the gate, you know. And we're like that as people. We're rebels. And when we live and relate to God through rules and through laws and through regulations and through formulas and through religion and all the man-made commandments that are not the word of God, but are things that we've made up to make ourselves feel more holy, when we relate to God as a rule keeper and a law keeper and we're trying to legalistically be right before him, what it does is it strengthens our rebellion. It doesn't change us. It doesn't help us. It doesn't bring us closer to God. If anything, we become more self-righteous and self-involved and we just increase sin within us. And so we're rebels and we know it. And oftentimes, because of our rebellion, we think that God, as a perfect, righteous God, would never be able to relate to us. The Bible says, what fellowship can light have with darkness, or the unrighteous have with the righteous? And so we think if God is a righteous God, and we are unrighteous rebels, how will God ever love somebody as imperfect as us, as flawed as me? How would I ever be accepted in this place? And that's how we feel. And so oftentimes, because we feel rejected, because we feel condemnation, because we feel guilt and shame, we double down on our rebellion and say, well, my life is lost anyway. God will never accept me now in any case. So I'm gonna go all out. And I'm gonna live for myself to the greatest degree that I can. But what we didn't count on in all of this, what we couldn't have seen coming, is the curveball that God threw at, at, at us as rebels. Like we were expecting God to be judgmental. We were expecting him to be condemning. We were expecting him to punish us for what we have done. But we couldn't have imagined the curveball that was thrown at rebels like us when God completely derailed our rebellion and confounded our condemnation and shamed our shame. By instead of punishing us, taking on the form of a man, God being in Christ, his own son, and then paying the price himself that we could never have paid for ourselves. That's just the biggest curveball in all of history. That God would die for rebels like us. That he would give himself up. Hebrews 12, 2 says, for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. Jesus went to the cross, despising the shame, that, 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 that in the Greek is a play on words which means shaming shame. He put shame to shame. The shame that, that the enemy has tried to bring onto your life, God has put that shame to shame and set you free. And he did all of this before you repented, before we even thought about praying, before we even had an idea of living for God, before we even decided that we needed to change our lives. He did it for us while we were yet sinners. And that is the greatest demonstration of the love of God. That's why we celebrate Resurrection Sunday because we know that God loved us enough to die for us while we were yet rebels. That's what it says in Romans 5 verse 8. It says, while we were still sinners, while we were yet sinners, God shows his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, 
Christ died for us. He sent his son to die for us as rebels like us, to bring us home, to turn us around. That's what the word repentance means. In the Hebrew, it was the word teshuva, which means let's go home, let's go back, let's turn around. And this is a joyful going home. This is like the kind of going home that a soldier would feel when a soldier was out fighting a war or fighting a battle, longing for home, and finally receives that that letter to know that they've been discharged and they get to go home and they get to be with their family. That is the kind of going home that we do when we repent. It's the goodness of God that turns us around. It's His love that, that causes us to love Him. We love God because He loved us first. Ephesians 2, verse 12 says, Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ. There was a separation between us and God because of our sinfulness, having no hope and without God in the world. Having no hope. Remember that there was a time that you were separated from Christ, and to be separated from Him means to be separated from hope. And I realize that in our world we have so many people that don't have hope. And I can't even imagine, I tried to put myself in this position as a person who believed that if there was a God, that he definitely wouldn't accept me. I tried to think back to what that must have felt like or must feel like to live every day thinking God disapproves of me. I think that my rebellion would reach levels that people couldn't even imagine. I'm so thankful and I'm so grateful that I know the hope of God because what I realized is people are not hopeless. Many of them just don't have hope. And the gospel is the hope of God brought to us in this world. In verse 13 it says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. We're no longer strangers. We're no longer far away from God. We're no longer standing off in the distance looking into it going, I wish God could accept me. Because of the blood of Jesus, we've been brought near. We've been accepted. And this is how God embraces rebels like us. This is how he changes our hearts by revealing his love. It's the greatest weapon that we have. People often talk about spiritual warfare and what are the the weapons of our warfare. But let me tell you that everything that we could say and everything that we can believe and everything that we could do doesn't compare to the knowledge of the love of God for us. Nothing is more powerful in our lives than recognizing that we are the ones whom Jesus loves and died for. Like we saw in the story of the prodigal son, when the father saw his son coming from, from far off, you who once were afar off, he ran to meet him and he embraced him and he kissed him much. And the son said, I'm not worthy of being called a son. I've rebelled against you. I've sinned against you in heaven. Just treat me as one of your hired servants. And the father completely ignores this request. And he says to the people, he says to his servants, he says, bring the best robe, the best robe, because he's not just a servant. He's part of the family. He's come home. Take the ring of my family that has the signal of my family and the the authority that I carry as the father and put it on his finger because he is my son. Give him my authority and put shoes on his feet because he is not a slave or a servant, but a son. Under the law, we were slaves. 
but under the, the gospel, under the grace of God, we are sons of God, we are children of God, and we have received a spirit not leading to bondage again or slavery again, but a spirit by which we cry out, Abba, Father. This morning, if your faith is in Jesus, it doesn't matter what your story has been, there is a story topper here for you. You've been resurrected, you've been brought home with Jesus, and you are called a son. And if a son, as it says in Galatians 4, 7, then also an heir to the throne. All of God's promises belong to you. And this is how God takes us from being rebels to righteous. The title of my message this morning, if you're taking notes, is From Rebel to Righteous. We go from being rebels, God-haters and sinners, to sons and daughters of God, children of God, that are made the righteousness of Jesus through our faith in Him, and that's how God welcomes us home. I'm so grateful that Jesus didn't just die on the Friday. That he didn't just die as a good moral teacher or as somebody who had some insight into spiritual matters or, or was a good example for us to follow in the flesh, in, a, in, in the way of living. Jesus wasn't just a religious teacher. He was who he said he was. He was Lord. He was God. And he is the one who not only died for our sins on Friday, but was also raised from the dead on Sunday. How many of you know it's easy to make a claim or a promise or to say that you are something? Have you ever overpromised and found yourself unable to deliver? You say they, they always say you should underpromise and overdeliver rather than overpromise and underdeliver. Have you ever underdelivered on something? You said, This is who I am and this is what I can do. Maybe it was a, a new contract or something that you were off and you're like, I can do it. And then you found that you didn't have the skills to actually back it up. That's a horrible position to be in. I was playing tennis when I was like maybe 12 years old in primary school. I was playing tennis with some guys and I wanted to impress them. So I told them that I, even though I played club tennis at the time, I wasn't in the provincial team, but I was like, no, I'm in the provincial team. I'm that good. And then I went and played and they were like, yeah, you're not in the provincial team. We know this now. How many of you know Jesus could have made a claim? He could have said, you know, I'm the son of God. But if you say that, and you're put to death, you've got to back it up by coming back to life. And the resurrection means that Jesus truly is who he said he was. And if he truly is who he said he was, then it means that every other promise he has ever made about us and about the future and about your life is also yours. If that promise, the most difficult one we could ever expect to see come true, Jesus raised from the dead, if that was true, then everything else that God has ever promised over your life is true as well. That's the great news on Resurrection Sunday, that if he said that you are made alive together with him, then him being alive means that you're alive today. And I'm so grateful for this, that he was raised, because our faith hinges on the fact that Jesus was resurrected. The scriptures say this in 2 Timothy 2 verse 11. It says, this is a trustworthy saying. You can put your trust in this. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we died with him, we'll also live with him. Some of you are thinking, okay, does that mean, because I'm still alive right now, does that mean I have to die before I'll be raised? No, what it's saying is, is that when through faith, you take on what Jesus did for you by believing in the, in the finished work of the cross, you are essentially the rebel and the sinner and the God-hater within you is crucified with Christ. 
you die with him. Your old life is wiped away. And the Bible says you become a new creation. So if you died with him through faith, then we can fully believe that we have a new life in Jesus today. An incorruptible, eternal life that will continue on after you die physically. It's a God-given, God-breathed, spiritual life that is eternal and immortal. So what I'm trying to say to you today is that we don't just have God's forgiveness. He's not just pardoned us for our wrongdoing, but you've become something brand new. You are something brand new today. And we need to make the shift in our minds because that's where the battle often is, that the spiritual truth is today is that you are a new creation, but sometimes we still see ourselves as the old creation. We still evaluate our abilities and our capabilities according to who we used to be rather than who God declares us to be now. And so the scriptures again and again is trying to point you to your new identity in Christ, that you're no longer a rebel, but you are now righteous. And too many people are focused on their sin, focused on the things they're doing wrong, and they're going, I've got to be better, I've got to be better, I've got to be better. That is once again the law, and all it'll do is make you worse. We don't want to live with a sin consciousness. We want to live with a righteousness consciousness. We want to know our righteousness and live according to who we are in Christ. If you believe fully in your heart that you are a new creation, let me tell you, you will start living according to that. Charles Spurgeon said, right believing leads to right living. You've got to believe right first about who you are in Jesus. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, behold, the new has come. If anybody is in Jesus, by faith, the old you has passed away and you are a new creation, not just a changed life. So many people say, you know, Jesus changed my life. And I get what they're saying. But more accurate than that theologically would be, Jesus has exchanged my life. Because he doesn't just take your old life and improve it. That's not what this is. The gospel is not self-help. It's not trying to become a little bit of a better version of yourself. That's such a, such a cliche saying in our world today. Just become the better you. Be the best you you can be. The gospel says, no, we're going to take you. We're going to kill it. We're going to end it. No more of that you. And you're going to become a brand new you. So we're not just trying to improve. Can you imagine if Jesus walked up to that coffin and he said, hey, guys, no, this guy is dead, but don't worry, I'm going to make him look a little bit better. Here, I'll take a flower and just put it in his suit pocket. There we go. Now he's better. For many people, that's their Christianity. Still death, but just dressed up a little better. We're not here to dress up death. Jesus didn't come to make death more palatable. He came here to distinguish it and defeat it and destroy it and to give new life. And so it's not just changing or improving or modifying your behavior. It's giving you a brand new life that's in Christ. It's not a changed life. It's an exchanged life. This is the gospel. We have become something new, the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's who we are today because of the sacrifice of Jesus. Paul says, it's no longer I who lives, but it's Christ who lives in me. 
It's no longer me, the old self, trying to make my way, but I have a brand new life as Jesus lives through me. And this is the only way for us to be free. This is the only way for us to live with the power to defeat sin in our lives. Sin is not defeated by the law because we cannot defeat sin. Sin is defeated by grace. The grace of God that renews rebels like us gives us victory over sinfulness. Andy Stanley said, the gospel is not about taking bad people and making them good. So many people see Christianity that way. Oh, I don't want to go to church because I don't want them to tell me how I'm supposed to be good and I know I'm not. But the gospel is not about taking bad people and reforming them slightly to make them a little better. It's about taking dead people and making them alive. Jesus showed this through the resurrections that he performed as he prayed for people. And in his own resurrection, it's about a brand new life in him. And this is such great news for rebels like us. In fact, it is the best news you will ever hear. All of our behavior moves towards a goal. All behavior moves towards a goal. You, know, you see people doing something and you're like, why on earth would you do that? Like, why would you do that? You know, sometimes as parents, we say that about our kids. Like, why would you do that? I think maybe the toddler age is the only age where nothing's moving towards a goal. It's just random chaos. But, but other than that, as, as people... The things that we do, even though we don't always know where it comes from, it stems from some motivation, something that we're hoping to have as a result. And you know what 99% of the time our behavior stems from? The desire to be accepted. The desire to be accepted. You know how deep the desire is because we were created for a relationship with God. And that relationship has been broken down by our own sinfulness. And so we have an immense desire for acceptance. And so people go out into the world and they think, if I make enough money, if I do enough good things, if I, if I dress the right way, if I say the right things, if I get the right position, if I, you know, whatever else we might search after, if I can drive the right car or live in the best area, whatever it is, we are looking for acceptance. So many of those things would fall away if we just understood that we already are accepted. I'll never forget my boy Jude. Um, he was once, I was dressing him and he was being all boisterous and, and uh, I said something to him and he said to me, um, no, I don't love you anymore. You know, when you've got toddlers and they're upset with you, like, I don't love you anymore. I'm not a part of this family anymore. And we're like, you know, as parents, we're like, okay, no problem. You know, see you next week, you know. <laughs> so, um, but he said that and I said to him, that's not nice to say that, Jude. I said, how would you feel if I said, I don't love you anymore? And uh, it had an unintended consequence he looked at me and he just burst out into tears. And I was like, I'm not saying I don't. I'm just saying, how would you feel if I didn't? And for like two days, he was mad at me. And he was like, but you said you don't love me anymore. I was like, I didn't say that. I said, how would you feel if I said it? And so now, since then, it's been like two years since then. Every night when I put him to bed, I whisper in his ear, Jude, I love you forever, all right, just to kind of like bring that point home, I love you forever, that's what I say to him every night when he goes to bed, but I realize that even at a young age, we have this desire for acceptance, we want to be accepted, we want to know that we belong and that we have a place of acceptance, the biggest problem we face, however, is that we live in a disconnected society, we're disconnected from each other and we're disconnected from God and we long for acceptance, but we isolate ourselves. And so our greatest desire is to be connected not only to each other, but also to God. 
But we struggle to understand how a perfect God could be connected to imperfect people like us. How could he truly be connected to us? And this is why it is absolutely vital, church, that we understand that because of the resurrection, we are the righteousness of God. Because you'll always struggle to believe that you can pray or that you could worship or that you could have a relationship with God as long as you feel that you're disconnected. And the only reason why you would believe that you're disconnected is if you're still looking at yourself and saying, I don't deserve it, rather than looking at the cross and saying, but he earned it for me. And so it is not humility to reject salvation in order to try and make it on our own. That's self-righteousness. That's what the religious people did in Jesus' day. They said, having, wanting to stand on their own righteousness, they rejected the, the righteousness that came from God. But when you humble yourself before God, you realize, I can't do anything for God to love me. I can't do anything to save myself or to be accepted by Him. But I believe that His heart is that even when I was a sinner, He died for me so that I could be reunited with Him. The Bible says that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. He was the one who brought us to himself. And he says, and he has given us this ministry of reconciliation. In other words, that is our message. That is what we share with our city and with our friends and with our colleagues. Be reconciled with God, not because you're good enough, but because God is gracious and kind and because he loves you. That's the message of the, of the Bible. That's the message of the scriptures. And so we must understand our righteousness. What does the word righteousness mean? It means to be in right standing with God. Nothing between you and God. No obstacles between you. And here's the good news. Righteousness is not a job description. It's not a job description. It's not something we say, oh, you've got to go and be righteous. It's a birthright. It's something that when you are raised, you are raised as the righteousness of God. It's something that you are. And yes, it then does have the works of righteousness that follow it, but it follows it. It doesn't precede it. In other words, we don't earn our righteousness. We don't do righteous things because, in order to become righteous, but because we've been made righteous. It's a birthright. Righteousness doesn't mean that we're perfect in ourselves, but that we're unconditionally accepted in Jesus as sons and as daughters. You've been born into this family. Sometimes my kids, and when I was a child, and, and, and even as an adult, sometimes we do things that we shouldn't do. And even though we may be reprimanded, and even though we may be disciplined, and even though we may discipline our own kids, the one thing I've never said to my kids is, you're no longer my son. There's the door you can leave, you're no longer my son. Because even if I said something like that, which would be wrong of me to do and something that God would never say to us. But even if I said something to that, how many of you know that that doesn't change the fact that my son is my son? That will never change. And so in the same way, if you are born into the righteousness of God, you can never not be righteous. In fact, the scripture says, formerly you were a slave to sin, and we spoke about that. And now it says that we are slaves to righteousness. And I always thought that that was a negative thing. I was like, oh, okay, so no matter what, I'm a slave. But think about how hopeful that is. That means that even when I try and run away, what would, what would a slave master do if a slave ran away? He would pursue him and bring him back. 
Even when I'm trying to escape my righteousness, my right standing with God, even when I'm trying to wreck my relationship with Him, even when I'm trying to run in the opposite direction, when that rebellion stirs up in me and I become self-involved and self-righteous and I run off on my own path, the good news is I'm a slave to righteousness. And God will always bring me back to this relationship I have with Him, the acceptance I have in Him and the person that I've been created to be in Him because I am His child and you are His child and we are His child. The scripture says that we have the same power that raised Jesus from the dead, the same spirit that raised Him from the dead lives in us also. And Paul prays for the church in Ephesus and he says, I I'm I'm begging God to help you understand the power that is yours in Jesus. It's already yours. Because we go through life as if we don't have the strength to do the things that God has called us to do, but His grace has made it all possible already. I remember seeing the photo of an elephant, a six-ton male elephant that was in a circus yard that had been chained to a tiny wooden post about this big. Now, if you know anything about elephants, they can flip a car just with the strength that's in their trunks alone. If any of you care, 40,000 muscles just in the trunk. That little piece of wood will do nothing. They push, if you go to the Kruger, they're pushing trees over it all day for fun, just to get to like one little thing in the root that has got some nutrients. So that little piece of, and, and people have often asked, like, how, why would the elephant remain chained to that tiny piece of wood stuck in the ground? And they say, the reason why the six-ton elephant doesn't just walk away with the piece of wood in tow is because it has been chained to it since it was a newborn calf. And at that time, wasn't able to move it, and it got so conditioned to its ability at that time that now even though it could rip that, in, that entire thing out of the ground with no effort at all, it still doesn't know that it can. And you know, so many times we're like that. We've got the power of the Holy Spirit on the inside of us. The same power that created the heavens and the earth. The same power that raised that boy and, and got him to sit up out of his grave start or out of his coffin and start talking. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead, it lives in you. And we still act as if we've got no power at all. Still chained to the same old things. Still chained to our rebellion and and slaves to our desires. And how am I ever going to get over this? You need to begin to believe in the righteousness that is yours and the power that exists within you. That's the only way to freedom. This is the prayer, uh, Ephesians 1 verse 19. Paul prays and he says, I also pray that you will understand the immeasurable greatness of God's power toward us who believe. This is the same mighty power that raised Christ from the dead and seated him in the place of honor at God's right hand in the heavenly realms. That's the same power of God that works in us, not just forgiven. You know, so many people are like, and this is true, but it it goes beyond this. They say, oh, thank God, thank God Almighty. Free at last, free at last. They're like, I'm just a sinner that's been saved. And that's where their Christianity and their faith ends. Yes, you are a sinner that was saved. 
but you're also the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. There's also a new identity and the power of God at work and a call and a destiny that God wants you to believe in and take up. You've been seated, the Bible says, because we are heirs to the throne of God, we are seated with him, we are co-heirs with Jesus, the scriptures say, seated with him in heavenly places, operating in the authority of heaven. My final verse this morning, Romans 6 and verse 8. It says, now if we died with Christ, again through faith, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. Death cannot claim him. It cannot own him. It cannot dictate his actions. Death has no dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also today, church, anchor church, everybody in this building, likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin. That's how you should see yourself, dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's our new identity. You are dead to sin and you are alive to God alive, and the life that you now live, you live in God and through His power. The resurrection of Jesus here on Resurrection Sunday means that we are alive to God. And I was thinking about what that means. If you took a dead man and you raised him up as all the blood starts flowing again and the heart starts pumping the blood throughout the body and, and all the extremities begin to tingle and begin to come alive, it means something to come alive how the senses would become alive again and would function again and would see again. And if you've always been dead and all of a sudden you're brought to life, I can imagine the sensation of being able to see. Once you were dead, now you're alive, and so all of a sudden your eyes can see. And the truth is we were dead spiritually, but now being alive in Christ, it means that our eyes can see things that we've never seen before. Again, Paul prays and he says, may the eyes of their heart be enlightened. We now get spiritual eyes. For things that are seen are temporal, but the things that are unseen, the spiritual reality are eternal. We get to see into eternity. When you're in the midst of a broken situation, you get to see with the eyes of hope. You get to see people, not according to the flesh any longer, but according to who they could be in Christ. And you begin to treat people in a new way. And you get to approach situations in a brand new way because your eyes have come alive. They're filled with hope. They're filled with joy. They're filled with passion because you're alive. Your, your ears begin to hear. When you're raised from the dead, you begin to hear sounds again. And this time, not just the sounds of the noise that gets made in the world, but all of a sudden you're able to hear the voice of the Holy Spirit. You're able to hear God speaking to your heart, that still small voice that says, this is the way, walk in it. You get to hear God's voice Jesus said, my sheep know my voice and they will not follow the voice of a stranger. You get to hear the truth. The dead man that was raised in this story in Luke 7, he sits up and he begins to speak. And I always imagine, what was he saying? 
He's like, come on, Luke, give us some info. This guy's just come back from the dead. What, what did he have to say? I want to know what it was. But the truth is, is that we've been brought to life and so have our mouths. You know how much idle talk exists in the world? You know, go, go stand around the water cooler at the office at like a tea break during the week. And the utter nonsense that just comes forth from people's mouths. They're always talking about the latest scheme or the, or the car they want to buy or, or, or how hot the chick in the next office is. I'm using their language, not mine, just so you know. But <laughs> have you ever hung out with a group of people and thought to yourself, I am pretty sure that I am now dumber for having been a part of this conversation than I was before? The world has nothing to say. It has no encouragement. It has no positivity. It has no life in it. It's negativity. Listen to people talk about our country and what's happening in South Africa, the negativity that gets spewed day in and day out. But when you've been raised from the dead, you get to speak encouragement. You get to speak truth. Our words are able to create worlds. Our words are able to lift the spirits of people, to give hope to people, to give courage to people, to empower people to become what God has destined for them to be. Why would we use our words for anything else? When God resurrects us, He resurrects our words. And He gives us the power of life and death in our tongue to speak life into people. Why don't you go this week and you take the opportunity to encourage someone. Even if you just tell them that their outfit looks great today, or they, they, they look so well rested, or they, and you know, sometimes that works great when somebody actually looks tired. Tell them, you look great today. And all of a sudden, they feel great. Let's use our words as instruments of righteousness to uplift people and to share the gospel and to, and to tell people about the love of God. As you come alive, your soul is able to feel again. You're able to experience things. How many of us just become jaded in life? So cynical. We see this in church all the time. The cynicism that exists in our world. Everything is negative. And, 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 and they'll come to church and they get this pastor just trying to control people. And, and it's just all about the money. And they just think this. And they just want to tell me how to live my life. It is so cynical. We don't even recognize the truth anymore. We're unable to feel anything. I remember Max Lucado talking about when he was a boy and he went into church and he sat next to his dad and his dad worked with his hands and had these big calluses on his hands. And he would often take a safety pin out of his mom's handbag and sit on the pew with his dad and push that safety pin through the dead skin. And he was amazed at how he could push it through the skin and nothing would be felt by his dad. His dad would just sit there with his hand open. But one day he decided to push the pin in a little bit too deep and it went beyond the dead skin and it touched something that was still living. And in the middle of church, he cried out. He literally screamed out in church. And Max Lucado says, well, now as a pastor, he's often doing the same thing. Except those calluses on people's hearts. And he's often just trying to take the sword of the Spirit, the Word of God, and he's trying to push it in deep enough to go beyond all the dead, cynical skin that has surrounded your heart to break through those walls and to say, there is life here. You can feel again. And when we've come alive, we get to feel. You get to feel God's presence. You get to experience His love. The acceptance we're talking about here isn't just a theory or a philosophy. 
It's something that you begin to know in the inner chambers of your own heart. Something you begin to trust in. When you've been raised from the dead, you feel, you feel. Your heart begins to beat. The book of Ezekiel says, I will take your heart of stone. This is a promise that God makes. He says, I will take your heart of stone from within you and I will give you a brand new heart, a heart that knows me, a heart of flesh that can beat. That's the essence of coming alive is that our hardened hearts are exchanged for new ones that can beat and that can love and that can accept the grace of God and the, and, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. A heart that beats. Feet then begin to pursue. When you've been made alive, your feet are no longer idle. If you were once dead and now alive, I can imagine that guy didn't stay in that coffin very long. But he jumped out of there and started running around and like high-fiving people. I mean, there, was, there was a crowd that came with Jesus and there was a crowd that came with the widow and now there is a massive crowd and everybody's celebrating and I can imagine this guy just running through the crowd in joy. I was once dead, but now I am alive. But we're not just made alive so that we can high-five people. That's my, maybe how it starts. We're alive because God has given us a purpose and that's a purpose we get to pursue. We get to live with meaning. We get to live with a sense of destiny. We get to live powerfully in the purpose and the plans that God has for our lives because we are made alive. And we get to do all of this because we are no longer dead, but we are alive in Christ. If we died with him through faith, we are also raised to life and will live with him. His power in us, his purpose through us. This is what we get on Resurrection Sunday. This is a better story than what we can even perceive. This is so much better than my feeble attempt to highlight some of it to you this morning. This is something that we cannot even imagine. We can only receive it by faith. But God has got life for you, a purpose and a plan and a future that will affect the lives of many others. We get to take the life of God. I'm gonna end with one story, and this is not in my notes. I just thought about this now. The great story of when there was a plague that hit the people of Israel because of their rebellion. We're talking about rebels, and their, their rebellion produced judgment, and, and, and there was a plague that hit the nation of Israel, and death was sweeping through them. And what happened was that Aaron, Moses' brother, who was the first high priest, he ran and he took some, some fire from the altar which represents the cross. It represents the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. And he took that fire and the Bible says he ran and he stood between the living and the dead. And where he stood, death stopped. The plague ended. Church, that's our role in this world. We wanna be the ones who have taken the fire from the cross, the fire of the altar, the fire of the truth of God's love, and we wanna run into the midst of the death that, that is so pervasive in our city, and we wanna stand between the living and the dead, and where we stand, we put an end to death. The message of reconciliation. Be made alive. Awake, O sleeper, rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. It's the power that we have in Jesus Christ. And I am so grateful that Jesus has done that for us. Amen.
Amen. Won't you stand with me this morning as we pray?